Transform your investment strategy with the MD Platinum Global Private Equity 2023 Trust. This unique offering exclusive to physician families uses non-traditional strategies that allow you to diversify your portfolio and potentially help grow your wealth over the long term. With access to institutional level private equity opportunities, this solution could be what you need to help you meet your financial goals. Learn more about this limited time opportunity at mb.ca slash private equity. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of the MD Market Watch podcast. I'm your host, Alex Chung, Content Manager with MD Financial Management. For this episode, we once again check in with Vice President and Senior Portfolio Manager Craig Maddock and Assistant VP and Portfolio Manager Ian Taylor. In this episode, we kick things off with a quick recap of the markets, performance, and key themes. With fall in full swing, we moved into our outlook for the remainder of the year for the first part of 2021 and over the longer term. Of course, we also dove into key factors impacting the direction of the global economy and the performance of MD funds and portfolios. Please enjoy. Welcome back, Craig. Ian, thanks again for joining us. Thanks, Alex. Happy to be here. Thanks, Alex. Happy to be back. So another quarter in the books, gentlemen. Ian, why don't we kick things off with you with a recap of global markets. Overall, the story looked positive, but what did you see? Well, Alex, we saw another strong quarter for stock markets as they continued to recover from the sharp contraction we saw in March due to the COVID-19 economic lockdowns globally. The MSCI World Index, the broadest measure of developed market stocks globally, was up over 5% in Canadian dollar terms for the quarter, and it's now up almost 40% since the depths of the crisis, and somewhat surprisingly is even positive for the year now. Again, this was led by U.S. stocks, where the S&P 500 hit a record high in early September. Globally, we've actually seen markets that are more levered to a true global recovery, and in particular, uh, manufacturing and trade-oriented markets like Sweden, Korea, Taiwan, Germany, and Japan, also delivering very strong returns, which is a positive sign of the economic recovery. Meanwhile, some markets that have faced renewed lockdown fears due to further outbreaks of the virus struggled to deliver strong returns, in particular Australia and France. Here in Canada, the TSX delivered a 4% return, led by the materials and industrial sectors, further signs, again, of the ongoing economic recovery. Of course, looking back at the positive returns for the whole quarter masks some of the underlying uncertainty that still persists. In particular, global stocks sold off towards the end of August and into September, with the MSCI World Index falling 7.7% before recovering through the end of the quarter. Now, this was led primarily by U.S. technology stocks, which at one point were down close to 12% after rallying significantly since the bottom of the crisis and year-to-date. Other notable developments throughout the quarter were the continued stability in bond markets, where Canadian government bond yields largely traded in line with where they were at to begin the quarter. And with that stability and the ongoing economic recovery, that helps credit spreads to narrow further, so corporate issues outperformed over that period. In the currency markets, the biggest story was the weakening of the U.S. dollar, as it fell against nearly every currency, including the Canadian dollar. This is seen as a positive development. The U.S. dollar strengthened significantly at the onset of the crisis due to financial conditions tightening on a global scale, so a further weakening of the U.S. dollar could be seen as beneficial to the global economy, given its importance in many funding markets. Following the recovery, we continue to see commodities recover as well. WTI crude oil is up $5 to just over $40 a barrel, reflecting a market that's fairly balanced, but still significant excess supply available in that market. And gold prices continue to show strength, but were also very volatile. And over the quarter, up 9%, benefiting from 
the weaker U.S. dollar and a continued commitment by policymakers, in particular central banks and also fiscal policy, to keep interest rates low and, as a result, the opportunity cost of holding the metal low as well. Well, it's great to hear that the recovery is proceeding, but let's look forward a little bit. What are your expectations for the rest of the year and the early part of 2021? Our view continues to be one of recovery of the economy and ultimately further expansion. One development is that we now believe that we're progressing beyond the earliest stage of recovery, and this has implications for both the economy and the stock market. For the economy, it means we are going to start reverting to a more normal pace of expansion. Much of the economic data we've seen over the quarter reflected a quicker-than-expected rebound in the global economy as extra economic restrictions were lifted and large parts of the economy returned to work. We can track this directly through the Citigroup Economic Surprise Indices, where the global index measures whether or not incoming economic data is exceeding, meeting, or falling behind expectations that economists had prior to the data release. This index rose to record highs through the quarter as employment, housing, consumer spending, and economic survey data all contributed to positive surprises relative to expectations. What this means for the stock market is that the focus will turn more towards the sustainability of the expansion and also the durability of corporate earnings. Along with the economy, earnings surprises were significant in the second quarter. And we think there is definitely scope for further recovery on this point, even if we are out of perhaps this honeymoon phase of this recovery where data just reflects the opening of the economy, but now moving into more an expansionary stage. Key risks to this view are well-known, well-publicized, continue to have the global pandemic as a very much a real you know, health crisis and headwind to the economy and markets as a result, the potential for further lockdowns. And then also we have geopolitical uncertainty, including the U.S. election. On the virus front, we believe the economy is adapting quickly, and perhaps that speaks to some of the data that we saw over the last quarter. Widespread testing, increased sanitization, social distancing are becoming the norm, and fiscal policy remains significant for those who maybe have lost their jobs as a result of the crisis or whose businesses are struggling. Now, for the U.S. election and resulting uncertainty, the market continues to price in a volatile period around the election. It's expected. But once the dust clears, we think on a 12 to 18 month basis that the focus will return to the ongoing economic recovery and expansion and ultimately lead to higher stock markets over the period. Well, thanks so much, Ian. Craig, let's punt things over to you. What are we seeing over the longer term? Thanks, Alex. It's a very important question for our clients right now. And actually, good timing. We've just recently updated our capital market assumptions. These are the 10-year forecast across a wide variety of asset classes and investment choices that we use to define our portfolios. Using those, we develop over 100 different portfolio options for clients, ranging from people who are very conservative to those who are quite aggressive, and a range of different choices between passive, active, using liquid alternatives, and even private alternative investments. Now, the new reality is that bond yields are very low, exceptionally low. 10-year government bonds are paying around 60 basis points or, you know, just over half of 1% a year. Hard to think you can generate a lot of returns long term with those kind of bond rates. And unfortunately, we expect that they will stay that way for many years to come. That means the return for more conservative investors has declined going forward by around 1.5% per year just in the past year. That's why we continue to innovate our investment approach. We're developing new solutions like private investments that can make a meaningful difference in portfolios. Additionally, the value of active portfolio management is even higher today in a world of very low interest rates. Let's say if you are a conservative investor, 
I encourage you to review your portfolio options with your MD advisor and make sure you're still on the right path. Now, in contrast to the low rate environment, we expect equities to perform slightly better going forward compared to our last estimates. That's partially due to the lower starting place. Stock markets are, as much as they've recovered, as Ian mentioned, uh, they're still at a lower point compared to the last time we did our capital market assumptions. And they also reflect this low interest rate environment. Low interest rates are supportive of company profitability, as well the longer term relative attractiveness of stocks compared to bonds is certainly stronger in a low interest rate environment. And of course, there's no free lunch as our return expectations have changed, so have our risk estimates. I'd say the good news is if you are an aggressive investor with long-term outlook, the opportunities look pretty good from here with returns approaching 7%. A moderate risk investor should expect their equity investments to do more of the heavy lifting in the years to come compared to bonds in the past, but still an overall return of around 5.5% is still quite reasonable. I think we talked about this last quarter when we discussed the winners and losers over the second quarter of the year. We focused in on value stocks versus growth stocks small cap stocks versus large cap stocks, and different sectors and geographic regions. What's happened this quarter? Well, the story for the quarter continued to be dominated by value versus growth, and probably even greater than the last time we spoke. You might also describe it as, you know, characterizing it as the old economy versus the new. The performance gap in growth versus value is now extended to the largest amount ever such that the one-year period ending September, growth outperformed value in the United States by 43%. As I said, the largest since the history of these indices were started in 1979. The only other time it came even close was February of 2000, when growth outperformed value by 34%. It was in the height of the IT bubble. Now, maybe to foreshadow a bit, but by the end of February 2001, value outperformed growth by over 50%. Not to say that's what we're in turn for the next year, but definitely we are at extremes. So that means if you had invested in U.S. growth a year ago, your return would have been a staggering 39%. However, it was driven almost entirely, and we've talked about this in the past, by just a few large companies, the likes of Apple, Amazon, Microsoft. And clearly the COVID pandemic has helped other companies in this environment as well, such as PayPal or Zoom as people have changed some of their behaviors. Ian alluded to that earlier, that we are pretty adept at moving our activities and behaviors to adapt to the environment. And certainly there's some companies that are benefiting from that. I think another interesting one is, and this is maybe where some of the issues with respect to growth and the strong outperformance versus value maybe not being sustainable. Tesla was up almost 800% in the last year. You compare that to the traditional automakers like Ford and GM, which were down 20% for the period. Now, granted, Ford and GM are cheap stocks on a relative basis. I'd say they're a pretty good representation of the old economy. Well, Tesla, with a price earnings multiple of over 1,000, is arguably is ridiculously expensive, yet it's the poster child for this new economy. You know, in a market capitalization of over $500 billion, it is 10 times more valuable than Honda, and it's half as big as all the other automakers combined. Of course, in contrast, you look at Toyota, which sells way more cars, call it 11 million in 2019 versus 300,000 for Tesla, and trades at somewhere around 10 times earnings. Oh, and by the way, they also make electric vehicles. I think it's a good reminder that regardless of how good something is or may be perceived to be, there is a point at which it could become a little bit too expensive. So those are some of the extremes, unfortunately, we're seeing in the markets now in this environment where growth has significantly outperformed value. 
coming back to maybe more normal relative ranges between growth and value, but still a contrast between the old and new economies is maybe Amazon versus Walmart. Amazon's trading at about 130 times earnings, pretty lofty valuation, but arguably a very good company and growing quite well versus the bricks and mortar Walmart that's trading at more like 23 times earnings. Still a relatively high multiple uh, given where we are, but in the backdrop of lower interest rates, probably a reasonable enough valuation. Walmart's not cheap, but Amazon is relatively expensive. At the same time, similar to my comments around the autos, both Amazon and Walmart sell stuff. Walmart has stores, arguably big box stores. They have big buying power and have good margins as a result of it and can sell things at very low prices. But they also sell other merchants' products online, just like Amazon. So again, we maybe are coming to some extremes where some companies are trading a little bit higher or more expensive than they might otherwise be. And maybe some of these other companies that have been overlooked may deserve a a second look as the economy comes back to something a bit more normal in a post-COVID world. Now, I'd say the good news or maybe glimmer here is that we did see this trend towards the new economy stocks hit a bit of a collapse in September. Ian alluded to the fact that we saw a pretty good pullback in consumer and tech stocks. Question is, is, was this a bubble bursting? Was it just a reset? Is it a sign that things have run their course and markets will move back to being more normally priced based on their long-term fundamentals? So maybe some of these expensive companies become a little bit cheaper. Maybe some of the cheap ones become a little bit more expensive and we get to something a bit more normal. I've certainly learned from all my years experience that it's better not to speculate and I'd rather have a well-diversified portfolio than try to guess exactly where we are in the context of that. Speaking on all these interesting trends, we've clearly been busy adjusting. Perhaps that's the wrong word. It's a fine-tuning our strategy. Ian, what are some of the actions we've taken recently? As mentioned before, we think there is continued scope for further gains in the stock market. And with bond yields at or near record lows, our preference is to maintain an overweight to stocks versus bonds at this time. And that's really supported by what we think is a story of economic recovery, supported by significant monetary and fiscal policy. One thing to note is that employment may not recover as quickly as the economy overall. Think of measures of GDP or corporate profits. Now, this was the case through the last two economic recoveries and may mean policy measures will remain stimulative for a longer period, and in particular looking at fiscal policy. This is in fact what the Federal Reserve has communicated over the quarter, indicating it will accept a higher pace of inflation should it materialize to ensure a full recovery of employment. Given the nature of this recovery, in that it is a recovery from an economic shock, and that the global pandemic continues to be a headwind, we are not taking a pro-cyclical stance in all of our positioning, preferring to be a bit more selective. In the quarter, we had a view that the yield curves would steepen out as a result of rates at the short end of the curve being held down by easy monetary policy, while yields at the long end of the curve, so think out past 10 years, would gradually rise as inflation expectations rebounded. Now, this did play out through the quarter and provide us the opportunity for us to close these positions, with us now taking a more neutral stance on the potential for fixed income over the next quarter. In our relative equity decisions, we do have exposure to some cyclical markets like Sweden and emerging markets, but also to the U.S. where growth stocks, which Craig touched on quite a bit, continue to provide stability in the face of the uncertainty of the global recovery. As for the currency markets, we continue to believe there is further scope for a weakening of the U.S. dollar, and we maintain our hedges on most of our U.S. dollar exposure. That's great. Now, before we wrap things up, Craig, how did all of this translate into performance for our funds and portfolios? 
Well, the good news, Alex, is that performance for the quarter and for the year for portfolios was quite good. Portfolio returns ranged from about 2.4% to around 4.5%, which is a quite good quarter. Look at a one-year result ending the end of September. Portfolios range from about 52 to 6%. This is actually well ahead of our long-term expectations, which range around 2 to 7% on the more conservative portfolios. Within the funds and pools, it was also a good quarter. Our bond funds performed very well with both absolute and relative performance to their indices being strong. And a lot of that coming from the more opportunistic portion of our funds. Opportunistics where we invest in a diversified portfolio of global higher yielding bonds. However, we are quite conservatively invested right now within that component of the portfolio compared to how we've done so in the past. Our Canadian equity funds were also strong contributors with total returns around 6%, well ahead of the S&P TSX composite for the quarter driven by both growth and momentum. U.S. equities produced a solid return of almost 6%, but it was bifurcated based on that growth and value dynamics, as I mentioned earlier. As a result, outperforming the very concentrated S&P 500 index remained a challenge for most investors, including us. The glimmer of hope we did see in September when value outperformed growth for the first time in a while uh, was quite good. As I mentioned previously, I wouldn't say it's time to jump out of growth and into value. It's likely we'll see pockets of outperformance like this from value investments as improvement to the management of the coronavirus leads to continued improvement in the economy. But clearly, it's not time ever to jump from one style to the other. In fact, that's why we always use a balance of both. In international equities, where we did increase our allocation to our portfolios last year, it was a similarly strong quarter. But unlike the U.S. funds, a large portion of the return over the quarter was outperformance versus the index from some good quality growth names performing very, very well. I think it's a good reminder of uh, the value of our approach. We use that same diversified investment approach, whether it's in Canadian, U.S., international equities, and we use the best investment advisors across all of our investment pools uh, that we can find. And the recently concentrated nature of certain markets, like the U.S., don't favor diversification and prudent risk management but instead reward highly concentrated and arguably speculative investments. Not to say that we won't own most of these companies. We just know that a prudent approach must include lots of different businesses and more compelling valuations in order to be successful over time. Well, thanks again for joining us today, guys. The look back was very informative and the outlook was very insightful. We really appreciate your time. No problem at all. Thank you, Alex. For our listeners, if you have any questions about what we spoke about today, questions about your portfolio, please don't be shy. Reach out to an MD advisor. Whether you're a client or not, we are here to help. If you like this podcast, please be sure to subscribe through your favorite podcast provider and check out our other market commentary content available on md.ca. You'll find blog posts, videos, and much more. Last but not least, thank you to all the doctors, healthcare professionals, and other essential services workers out there for taking care of us at this time. Bye, everybody. Mm -hmm.